All right. How's everyone doing? Welcome back. I took a little bit of a breather after an extended run at ETH Denver, just 15 of these episodes uh, last weekend. I'm excited to be back uh, with my friend Mason Borda, who's the CEO of TokenSoft. And uh, we're gonna talk a lot about security tokens, we're gonna talk about compliance, remediation. Uh, this is not legal advice from either of us. Obviously, it's not gonna be legal advice from me. Um, but uh, Mason is not a lawyer, and he's certainly not your lawyer, uh, but he is doing a lot of work to help bring uh, some token teams back into compliance and, and helping to structure security token sales and, and get people fully locked and loaded from a regulatory standpoint. So uh, I'm super excited for this conversation, and I may be even more excited that to start things off, Mason decided he was gonna stack three chairs. <laughs> Which unfortunately we can't show, uh, but it was hysterical because he didn't like the, the, the dynamic. So I'm gonna I'm gonna both like chill out and like cross my legs a little bit like this. Um, but uh, uh, very very entertaining conversation upcoming on what is now unqualified opinions number sixteen from Masari. So follow along, ask questions, and uh, we'll make this as interactive uh, as possible. But first off. Um, Mason, why don't we start by just talking about TokenSoft, the genesis of the, of, of the company, um, what you guys are doing, and really kind of say the market right now, because you really had a, a thesis that was contrarian when you started off, yeah. and is somewhat obvious now in, in hindsight, and, and you've really carved out a niche for, for some of these specialized services. Yeah, uh, so uh, it was uh, 2017, and we saw all of these uh, ICOs uh, raise tons of money, and it brought a lot of attention to the space. Um, and uh, basically what they were doing was they would put a Bitcoin or Ethereum address on a website, say they were working on a project and, and money would come in, they would give back a token that could be used uh, on the project. Um, and uh, people were doing this very like informally. They didn't consult lawyers first, uh, some people did. Um, some people wanted to save money on their lawyers, so uh, they got reasonable advice. Um, and it was when that was happening that we noticed two things, because this ICO stuff had been happening since uh, Ethereum started. Ethereum did a, a fundraise themselves uh, online. Um, and we saw two things happen. Uh, there were people with reputations starting to do these, and there were also major law firms starting to agree on the regulations around them, that they were supposed to be under securities laws. And so um, uh, we picked up on those two things and we just sort of saw an open playing field for us to help these companies uh, follow those securities laws because uh, no one was doing it at the time. Uh, everyone was putting up their own website. Um, they weren't necessarily following all, all of their, uh, their lawyer's advice. Um, and so we just saw an opportunity for standardizing some of these compliance requirements when it comes to uh, doing these uh, securities offerings. Um, so that's when we entered the space was uh, late summer of 2017. And, uh, and yeah, just like you said, uh, a lot of people disagreed with what we were doing. Um, I had very prominent people in the space asking us why we're helping people do security tokens because everyone else was doing utility tokens. And, and so you've got this dynamic now where teams are coming to you fresh for what are bona fide securities and, yep. and they want to tokenize these securities. That was not a trend when, when you started TokenSoft. Yep. Uh, it was something that was maybe around the corner but certainly was, was not a trend. Uh, on the other hand, there are all of the quote-unquote utility tokens uh, that raised money in the bull run of 2017. And towards the back half of that year, there was a uh, kind of 1A uh, middle ground, which was the SAFT. And, and the concept that you could raise money from accredited investors pre-network launch, and then those might transmute somehow into redeemable tokens on the usable network 
once things actually got kickstarted. So um, the, the latter business, uh, security tokens, that's gonna take a while to, to materialize and there, there's, there's I think a lot of infrastructure that is getting built but that still needs to kind of come to market before that really starts to accelerate. Um, let's talk about the uh, utility token and, and kind of SAF market. So uh, when clients come to you guys, what is the general process if they're coming fresh and they say, we don't wanna do a securities token offering, but we do think that this token should be sold in a compliant way as if it might be later deemed a security. Mm-hmm. And then there's the flip side of, maybe people already did this and yeah. they're coming. So, so how do you think about those two different client bases that have related needs, but are very different um, time periods in their life cycle? Yeah, so uh, at TokenSoft we have clients that either launch uh, full blockchains, uh, they might maybe uh, tokens, sometimes they're ERC-20 tokens, uh, sometimes they're permission tokens, uh, things like uh, ERC-1404, um, or Harbor R token, uh, and so um, for for us, we treat them all the same. Uh, the the I think the beauty of building uh, technology for 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 compliance is that the regulations are all generally the same. Um, one of the things that's sort of different about what we're doing is um, there's securities regulations in the U.S., but they also exist around the world in different countries, and so. Um, from, from our perspective, uh, all of these clients we sort of treat the same, uh, regardless of what sort of product they're, they're trying to launch. It's just some of them need help uh, with the token and managing compliance during transfers uh, mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis, and then some people prefer to go their, their own route. And what, are you seeing a certain standard emerge? Because uh, you can sell these as securities and then there's something called Rule 144. We won't go into the heavy legal details, but there are paths to sell a security and then through this gradual process release them yep. to the general public mm-hmm. even if it's not an S1 or what people may have heard of the Reg A+. Like, there are a few uh, specific filing requirements with the SEC at least domestically but there are other paths that aren't just day one solutions for offering to retail yeah. investors. Um, are you guys thinking about, I guess, all the above, uh, it sounds like the approach, but specifically for these tokens that, that would like to be deemed utilities um, or that are already raised as if they were utility tokens versus securities, is, is that the path to come into compliance, I guess? Is, is that how they would think about it? Or explain uh, that dynamic of coming into compliance versus okay, you know, starting, okay. starting in a compliant way? Uh, yeah, so we're seeing different paths emerge to uh, making your token compliant. And so the SEC has outlined some of these uh, procedures through enforcement actions. And so uh, we are seeing, or since I would say late summer of 2018, we did start to see more and more companies that are looking to uh, convert to, to security tokens. And there are procedures that, that they can undergo. Um, in order to adhere to the securities regulations and have their tokens trade, uh, trade publicly. And so um, this is something that's still being figured out by uh, the general market, um, and it's, it's still newer. So it's, it's something that sort of emerged uh, recently as the SEC has been putting out more guidance. And, and so what you're talking about specifically is some of these teams, um, investors are entitled to what's called precision rights, which is basically a refund, right? Or, or we're getting made whole if, if, yeah. if something was deemed to be an unregistered securities offering. Um, in practice, how is that playing out? Because we've seen Economy uh, in the UK try to go through this conversion process, say actually we're just gonna register as a security. You've seen, um, was it Gladius? 
Yeah, Gladius. Right, uh, Gladius, a, a token project that just last week um, settled with the SEC yep. because they proactively came to them and, and we're going to re-register. Um, is that getting more and more pervasive? Uh, is, is it, do you expect that to hit an inflection point at some point this year? Because yeah. we've heard a lot of rumors about subpoenas yeah. and investigations and enforcement actions, or at least the threat of those. Yeah. But we haven't actually seen anything just yet, yeah. except for the really glaringly obvious, like bullshit fraud cases yeah, I think, that they, they could slam dunk. I think, I think the blockchain space, just because there's uh, money involved, there's potentially securities involved, uh, it's really easy to break the laws. And so um, what we saw when the market moved really fast in 2017 was uh, a lot of people potentially doing things that they should have thought a little bit more about. Um, and they perhaps should have consulted a lawyer about. And so um, I, I think that's just the nature of the space. Uh, there's just a lot of experimentation, and over time we'll figure out what the, what the right procedures are for, for doing these things. Um, but uh, these, uh, there, there are a lot of projects that didn't follow the right rules, and so they may want to uh, retroactively or by you know, negotiating with the SEC come to an agreement to, um, to follow those rules today. Um, and so it does seem like there are options there today, um, but it's, it's, there, there are a lot of projects that I'm sure wish could, they, you know, they could have done things a little bit differently. And this is where the politics comes in, and, and we're not going to mention any of your clients, and, and I don't want to put you on the spot to name names, but um, in the case of a token project that, I guess for lack of a better term, just gets told you did it wrong yeah, yeah. when they paid six figure, many, many multiples of six figures in some cases for, for legal fees. Um, where does the process start? Do you, do you typically uh, get in sync with the law firms or is it the token team saying, I don't know what happened, but whatever we were told was not right, so you know, help yeah. us fix this. Yeah, no, this is, this is the fun part uh, because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for, for the non-lawyer to, to be like the legal, like... Yeah, from, from my perspective, because uh, <laughs> it's, it's like everyone has a different problem. Uh, and so everyone has their tokens in a different state. Sometimes they're trading in different places. Sometimes they have control of the tokens. Sometimes they don't. And so it becomes more of a puzzle. And this is, this is the fun part. So we, we have to go in and figure out what the exact situation of the client is today. And we do, we do get all direction from our client's counsel. And, and by, uh, by working closely with them, we can sort of figure out what the pathway out is. Mm -hmm. there's, there's always a path. Uh, it's just a matter of figuring out what all the facts are, where all the coins are, what control the company has, and, and to see what procedures we can take everyone, uh, everyone through. Are you a subcontractor of sorts for the law firms then? Uh, no, uh, we you, or you're just working in concert. We just thing. work in concert, just because it's uh, the space is very nuanced. A lot of times, mm -hmm. the it's hard to explain the tech to law firms, and so that's that's what something we're really good at is just uh, making the uh, situation from on the blockchain side digestible. So uh, so law firms can work with us, and we can figure out exactly what the client needs to do to get to the next stage. And one thing uh, I find interesting, again, uh, uh, without talking about any specific clients, but, but as we were talking just before this, uh, you have a mix of domestic and international clients, yep. all of which are, are kind of working on solutions to the same problems. Yep. But how has that, um, have you seen a noticeable difference between the ones that are domiciled here versus the ones international? Because I would imagine the international teams, maybe yes, they're still in the crosshairs because you know, of the long reach of US law. Yep. But there seems to be a little bit less urgency 
depending on some steps that were taken for teams in Europe or Asia versus ones that are like headquartered in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, or, yeah, or Silicon Valley. So yeah. what, what, what does that difference look like? Um, so the, the laws globally are generally the same. Um, the, the thing is, the, the level of risk, I think, is different. Um, obviously, the U.S. is a very high-risk jurisdiction to, um, to do something novel in uh, from a securities perspective. And so um, there is going to be uh, a mindset of, you know, trying to do it right the first time, a little bit more urgency and trying to fix things if, if something was, uh, you know, not done the right way. Um, overseas, um, I think it depends, again, it depends on the risk. Um, mm -hmm. So there's just certain jurisdictions where you have to pay more attention. Um, and then there's, uh, and, and so um, I, I think when you look internationally, um, and you look offshore, it could be that they're following their local mm -hmm. requirements and they're not necessarily following the US. Sometimes we have some clients that block the US um, and it's possible to block different jurisdictions. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think some people do follow their local jurisdictional requirements and they're different than those mm -hmm. in the US. In the US, some, they're, they're very strict. Uh, sometimes overseas, they're a little bit different. Uh, Singapore passed specific guidance in 2017, November 2017 for these ICOs. Uh, Switzerland passed guidance in February of 2018 and generally what they do is they don't make it more strict but they say okay if you want to do it this is how you should do it um, and so uh, some people prefer to follow those local regulations just because it makes things a little bit easier there's more clarity and, and guidance. There's an element at least from my perspective or, or, or thinking through this uh, from the SEC standpoint of do no harm mm. or at least you would think so investors may have rescission rights, there may be processes to, to come into compliance, yep. but for tokens that are actually trading right now, and that might be up many, many multiples of where the initial token sale were, even despite the bear market, how, do you have any sense for how the SEC is thinking about those? Because, um, because some of the high profile offenders, if you will, retail investors may still have made a, a good deal of money. Yeah. Um, and if the SEC were all of a sudden to say, you need to unwind or you need to basically cease trading of these tokens, yeah. that would cripple the price, uh, at least temporarily, if not kind of permanently for, for many of these tokens. And the ultimate folks that lose are not gonna be the token projects. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna be the individuals that actually hold them currently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's a wrinkle that um, as you get new clients, they're just thinking, how do we start from a clean slate? But, but for some of these stickier situations where yeah. you might want to come into compliance without killing the token or, yeah. or, or the retail investor, how, how have teams thought about that? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, if I was to imagine uh, what a regulator would, you know, how they would approach it, um, there, there's probably things they can control and things they can't control. Mm -hmm. uh, so with younger projects that can uh, perhaps control their smart contracts, they'll freeze the token, freeze trading, things like that. Uh, that, that was very common in, in 2017. Um, there probably is a level of control, but then there's things, um, uh, let's say that the token was Ripple. Um, it, was, it was being traded everywhere, um, and uh, there's uh, perhaps no way to unwind all those trades. There's no way to uh, freeze, uh, freeze all of the coins at once. Um, I think in those situations, the cleanup work is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit harder to do. So it's about uh, what's technically possible, mm -hmm. uh, what are the regulations, and how do you meet and, and marry the two? So mm -hmm. how do you 
um, try to meet the regulatory needs um, with uh, the, the situation of the technology today. Does that create a perverse incentive for exchanges to push the envelope to keep listing tokens? Right, because if the general thought process is it, it gets messier to unwind these over time, it, it, it seems like a dangerous precedent to think that way, but uh, yeah. you've not necessarily seen a slowdown, even in the US, um, of tokens getting listed yeah. on various exchanges. That did conduct a token sale. I, I, wouldn't, uh, I probably wouldn't rule out just whole exchanges just shutting down and, and stopping. I, I could imagine that that could happen. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that it's a race to get in a certain state, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I could I could absolutely see them. Uh, well, certain exchanges aren't getting shut down. It'll yeah. be like the smaller ones get shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you get to a certain size, and if you list something, I think you know, the worst case scenario is probably going to be a fine. Let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the 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 teams and and the the um, the legal bills that can get racked up at. Uh, any of the top five U.S. exchanges or, or even internationally like Binance or mm -hmm. Bitmex, uh, it's, it's maybe orders of magnitude more than maybe the SEC could afford at this point given how many different moles they're trying to you know, whack in this, in this regulatory whack-a-mole yeah. that has been set up. Yeah, the, the, yeah, I would say the market's growing, and so it's, harder, it's always you know, harder to manage uh, a larger market that's, uh, that's more players, more, more companies, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about uh, you know, pausing smart contracts, and so, yeah, so this, yeah. this, this brings us to an interesting point that, that you brought up. Obviously, you know, Masari has onboarded 25 uh, or so token teams mm -hmm. to our disclosures registry, and um, one of the elements that is always in focus is uh, do we look as if we are in control of yeah. uh, this, this ecosystem? And our mantra has, has basically been if you have a token treasury, and you want to opt into these disclosures uh, in terms of how you're unwinding that and how you're kind of managing your own contributions, um, then of course that's, that's welcome. Mm -hmm. um, your point was uh, at, at a certain level of disclosures it becomes almost too much and maybe counterproductive because yeah. now you kind of put yourself in the crosshairs. Um, every, everyone I think in the industry though agrees on the need for better reference data and general common sense mm -hmm. transparency. Yeah. Where you know where do we find the the uh, right dividing line? Where do you guys uh, you know talk to clients about the right dividing line so that you're abiding by the spirit of of existing laws um, and not shooting yourselves in the foot, but also um, not being intentionally opaque with certain information? Yeah, I think uh, one th I think one of the challenges with with doing that is um, if there if there were clear regulations that said. You know, th these are the proper ways to follow, uh, to do disclosures, um, to uh, talk about talk about your company. Um, then, then that would be perfect. But I think the blockchain space moved in a lot of different directions, mm -hmm. and so sometimes it's hard to package that into a regulatory mold. And um, I think that's one of the challenges is sort of going back retroactively and seeing how closely you can sort of mirror these best practices that exist today. Um, and so I think with some of the uh, enforcement actions, we are seeing that. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of, um, sort of peeling back a, um, some, some, some nuanced uh, piece of, of the regulation that, that we hadn't really heard about widely and said, okay, this is the path that you can go and this is how you need to disclose things. So mm -hmm. um, it's, I don't know, it's a hard problem and some people just move too fast. So yeah. uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun problem. We'll see how it gets resolved. 
Um, so the other side of that question is thinking about um, control over smart contracts, mm -hmm. right? Um, so with certain teams, if you can pause the token contracts, then that obviously, you know, uh, that makes it seem as if the SEC could come to your door any day and, and say, you know, you should probably pause this, mm -hmm. uh, and they will. How about, um, how about some of the decentralized exchange protocols? Because this is like, I feel like the, where the rubber meets the road in this, in this battle between, you know, is code law? Yeah. Uh, how can you regulate code? Is it speech? Yeah. Um, and, and the CFTC commissioner that had previously mentioned mm -hmm. uh, pursuing prosecution of, of, yeah. of a developer that intentionally released uh, malicious code yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or code that, that might uh, fall outside of the uh, regulatory uh, regime would be liable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then what, actually walked those comments back and actually you know, did a post with Coin Center just a couple weeks ago. Um, where do you sit on the DEX side of things in particular? Yeah. Um, and, and, and where the regulatory dividing line might fall there? So I think, uh, I think the biggest challenge with DEXs is, is uh, that they're clearing transactions in, I think with, with traditional exchanges like Bitcoin exchanges, the regulations are very clear. There's, there's very you know, robust money transmitter laws and it's very binary. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in the securities world, uh, these DEXs can probably get in a little, they're a little more exposed. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges is they can, they can clear the transaction. They have the ability to stop and, and clear the transaction. And I think that exposes uh, potential regulatory requirements. And so um, for, for us, we don't really... Does, does that apply to the DEX protocols though? Or is that the relayers? In these systems, so you know, for instance, if you're building on top of zero X yeah, and your radar yeah. relay, radar relay is going to have different requirements, I think, in managing the interface and 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 you know their own order book. Yeah. And yeah. uh, zero X themselves, even though they're pushing a lot of the kind of core foundational elements. Yeah. No, the uh, I think I think the DEXs will have a lot of fun with this in the next year uh, because. <laughs> A lot of these DEXs raised money. By extension, you will have a lot of fun with it. Because yeah. <laughs> a lot of these uh, DEXs raised money on the premise that they were decentralized and therefore there were no compliance requirements. And so um, I think as, as the DEXs are moving through the space, they're starting to realize oh, wait, we are doing this type of activity. It is a regulated activity. And so we do have to, uh, we do have to comply with the applicable regulations. Um, so I think I think that this year is going to be sort of uh, about the deck space sort of slowing down a little bit and figuring out you know what they really have to do to, to service the, the clients they have. So we'll, we'll come kind of full circle back to the initial part of the conversation. I wanted to save securities tokens for last, yeah, yeah. Um, just because they seem like they're a little bit more future oriented. So some of the work that you're yeah. doing is almost like cleanup uh, work from the past cycle. A lot of people are super excited about uh, the security token uh, coming boom. I've been a little bit more skeptical because I don't think that liquidity just falls from the sky yeah, yeah. Uh, for these, for these uh, security tokens. What are you uh, most excited about in that particular realm? So what are going to be some of the breakout security tokens, the security token marketplaces, um, not in terms of price performance, but in terms of assets where tokenizing um, the trading of those assets or fractions of them could truly unlock liquidity that doesn't already exist. I don't think it's going to, it's not going to be public equities. Yeah. There's, you're not going to beat the public markets in terms of liquidity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it probably won't even be private equities, I would argue. But I would say that there are a number of other investments that, that certainly could benefit. I just don't know how to rank order them, and, and you're probably close to this. 
Yeah, so I still think in the space, uh, we haven't really found the, the killer app yet. Um, but I think there's two, two fundamental, uh, fundamental concepts in security tokens that are, that, are, that are interesting that do transfer from the decentralized you know, Bitcoin Ethereum world. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that. Uh, so, so basically what we're doing is we're taking traditional financial infrastructure, we're putting it uh, now on, on blockchains. And so uh, two features that I think are really interesting are these uh, trades can now settle 24-7. Um, so uh, these uh, security sales in traditional markets, they're usually you know, 9 to 4, 9 to 5. Um, and uh, if, we, if we're able to have infrastructure, it's uptime, the uptime is different. Um, and then the second thing that's very fascinating is the um, we've uh, in, in, starting in 2017. What we've basically uh, almost uh, forced uh, law firms to do is figure out global securities uh, laws and requirements. Mm -hmm. And so uh, now it is possible to um, automate the compliance requirements um, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, um, uh, either at a level of compliance that we're able to automate. And so um, that the one thing that does is it does provide access to, to global markets. Mm -hmm. So now we have global accessibility to different assets around the world, um, and it never shuts off. It's twenty four seven. So I don't think we know what the killer app is yet, but I think that uh, it'll take a lot of iteration on these two concepts to, to sort of figure that out and get there. Do you think the securities token exchanges that raised money during the ICO boom ran compliant offerings? Uh, I wouldn't be able to say. I'd, I'd have to take a take a quicker look or a, a deeper <laughs> look with uh, with our counsel. Yeah. Well, TBD. That's as good a place to end as any um, for token teams uh, that are thinking about compliance for uh, securities token exchanges that ran ICOs and and want to have uh, an independent third party check them out. Uh, strongly recommend Mason. This is not a paid advertisement. Yes. Uh, I've liked their approach for a while, and um, and and Mason and his team have certainly uh, been trying to do things the right way, and I think helpful at a lot of teams. So, um, Mason, thank you very much. Thanks so much. And we'll do it again soon. Cool. Take care, guys. Until tomorrow. Peace.